0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: Well, I think the the onboarding, the first six to 12 months are are key. You know, you don't want to lose that person. You know, frankly, you don't want to lose that person uh, after three years. I mean, think of all the education and training you, you've given that person. You want to make sure that as they grow in their practice, that their professional development, their autonomy grows. Uh, and that their level of interest grows. I've, the most frustrated people I've seen PA and, and NP wise over the years are those in which they're not allowed to grow their clinical practice they get bored, you know, after a year or two, and and then they start looking for another position. And that's not what you want as a, you know, a part of a group practice. You want someone who is engaged. You want someone who likes their job uh, and who does, a frankly, does a good job and wants to continue to grow um, professionally and educationally.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Urology podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. We're your host today, Aditya Bagrodia, and this is Oche Silva. Oche, how you doing today? Hey, what's up, man? Pretty good. Good, good, good. We're really excited to introduce our guest today, Brad Hornberger. Brad is a board-certified physician assistant, and a, an instructor in the Department of Urology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. He's been doing this for some time now, and I think we're going to get some invaluable insights from his experience. So Brad, welcome. Thank you for spending some time with us on this Sunday. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Looking forward to it. Good, good. So let's uh, let's just jump on into it, Brad. You were one of the first PAs in the Department of Urology here. How long have you been doing this?
1: So I did my last clinical rotation at UT Southwestern urology department, uh, I guess, in November of 2002. And so at that time, it was it was a great experience. Uh, it was, a, frankly, a month-long job interview for myself and for the department to see if we were both good fits for each other. Uh, they were looking for a PA at the time. And, uh, of course, everything worked out and I started working for the department in February of
0: 2003. I've been there since. So, so as a student, you were able to rotate in urology at that time.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. I knew I wanted to be in Dallas and so I was looking for positions and, uh, found the position and, uh, spoke to, uh, Ro- Dr. Rohrborn at the time. And, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to do an elective rotation with the department. Uh, and so I took, took the opportunity and of course, happy I did. In your perspective as a PA, what about urology is attractive? Well, I I think, you know, you probably hear the same thing from the residents, you know, during the interviews, you know, for me personally, I knew I wanted to work in a surgical subspecialty. That's kind of basically where I was at the time. Um, And, you know, of course, getting into urology, you learn that it's so varied, you know, there's internal medicine, there's oncology, there's uh, getting involved in the operating room, uh, outpatient procedures. So for me, it's the mix, it's the variety that really, I think has kept me there, that, and frankly, the the innovation that happens in urology, you know, I mean, you know, you've been around long enough and you realize that, you know, every five or 10 years, there's new paradigms that come in and, you know, I I don't know if that happens in every specialty, definitely not in family medicine for sure. So definitely
0: keeps your interests and uh, keeps you on top of your game. And that's probably my answer to why I'm a urologist. Yeah, the same is is yeah. You get everything. I, I think ENT of uh, ophthalmology, maybe they have the, yeah. the the same. You do clinics, you do a little, little little bit of procedures, but yeah. So so that's why I'm also a urologist. So so when you first started as a PA, what was your scope of practice? Uh, first you were shadowing. How how was it when you first started?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um you know, at that time, I I did a lot of shadowing for probably the first six or eight weeks. I I spent a lot of time with uh, Dr. Rohrborn. Whenever he was in clinic, I was in clinic. Whenever he was in the operating room, I was in the operating room. And as I gained more experience, you know, I I started seeing patients in the clinic and mainly they were non-surgical patients. You know, as you know, there's a fair amount of urology that is non-surgical in nature. And so I had a kind of limited practice at that time, you know, of course I wasn't going to see new prostate cancer patients or new renal masses, et cetera. And so as my experience matured, you know, then the types of patients I saw and as, you know, I grew, uh, my practice grew. But since the first
0: time, I mean, day one, you started seeing patients on your own?
1: No, 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 no i would sh- I would say I was shadowing Dr. Rorborn for at least six or eight weeks, you know, uh and then after that, I actually would rotate through with the different you know subspecialists we had in our department, frankly, you know in, in large academic medical centers, you know everyone's their own spe- you know specialty, and so I'd spend time with the urologic oncologists, I'd spend time with the stone experts, female urology et cetera and during that time, I was building up my clinical practice. So, of course, I wasn't seeing 20 or 25 patients a day at that time. I may have been seeing eight or 12, you know, and so it gave me more free time to to shadow and maybe help out with some of the new patients with the different uh, surgeons there in clinic as well.
2: That's, that's great, Brad. And, um, you know, I think making sure you're coming in from PA school with a, a nice broad exposure to all the different fields and just like for residents, you want to start dialing in. Now, maybe Kind of getting in a little bit into the, into the nuts and bolts. So were you screening new patients that you'd be interested in seeing that you think that would be appropriate? Can you speak a little? And I, and I know it's obviously yeah. been a little while, but now that you're also involved in kind of onboarding new PAs right. as well, what have you learned over time is a successful way to, you know, ramp people up into, in towards independent or, you know, less supervised practice?
1: Or is that yeah. even the goal? Yeah, I mean, I think every practice has their own needs, right? I mean, I think, you know, from a logistical standpoint, how it worked out for us and how it frankly still works out, um, you know, is that our schedulers have a list of diagnoses of uh, things that people see, you know, so, you know me, like I said, I'm not going to be seeing a patient even now necessarily with a new patient with a solid enhancing renal mass, right? We try and get those to the surgeons, obviously, but I'll see the patient who has gross hematuria, right? And I'll work them up. And if I do find a renal mass, then I'll send them to, you know, Aditya and, you know, he'll work them up and see if they need a partial nephrectomy, nephrectomy, et cetera. So from that standpoint, I think that's worked out really well for us, but you know, the way it works in terms of onboarding a lot of times depends upon the experience of the person you're hiring. A new graduate's different than someone who's been out in practice for three or five years and frankly knows how to take care of patients, right? I mean, that, that's part of it. But then also, does the person have experience in urology or not? And, you know, it's important to identify, frankly, what you're looking for ahead of time. And, and I think there's, you could look at it, you know, two sides of the coin. Some people would say they'd prefer to have a new graduate. You know, some people would say, I want someone with experience. You know, the people who say they want a new graduate want to be able to mold that person maybe, right? You don't have to get rid of bad habits maybe that have been incorporated into other clinical practices. So it it just really depends on what the needs of the practice are. And I think that what you'll find is that that new hire that you have will, will frankly mold themselves to the need of the practice.
0: Okay. I mean, Brad. Right now, so just so you know, uh, we're in the process. I already, we already hired a person, uh, but we haven't at least us. Uh, uh, I haven't had experience with a PA before, right. so we so we already hired. Uh, we had four candidates, like you mentioned. One was well seasoned. Another one, no no experience, and the, we ended up hiring one that had a little bit of experience surgery. Uh, that already had was taking care of patients, but she doesn't have uh, experience in urology, so. Uh, she's right right now in the uh, credential process and all that. So eventually, wh- how do I how do we start with her? Well, what when is a good time for her to not get frustrated with the, with the process? I mean, when when at first, how, how long will it take for her to to us? So all those questions are 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 there, and nobody has an answer.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think that's the most common question I get, and I think it all depends upon the person, frankly, you know, and I think it depends on how they matriculate and grow and learn uh, through the process. I mean, I think an important part for you and your group, honestly, is to identify a champion, you know, someone who is going to help mold that person, you know, you need someone to take responsibility, frankly, you know, You, you need to identify that person in your practice up front, you know, or that person may just be spinning their wheels, you know, trying to find some guidance and some help. I think that when you hire that person and during the interview process, it's mandatory that you set expectations, you know, you need to say, okay, listen, you're going to have to read on your own. You know, you need to give them access to things like the AUA university, et cetera, these online modules and, and say, you know, I expect you to read at least one, one clinical guideline a week or two or whatever, do journal clubs, try and get them involved in, you know, any type of educational opportunities that are there. Uh, And I'd say it has to be that expectation. That's why I tell every new hire, you know, outside of our fellowship program that we have, um, that you need to spend at least six months, at least six months, or you'll just be treading water. You won't be swimming. You'll drown eventually. You know, you need to put forth the effort or you're not going to be successful. And yeah, I
2: think that's frankly, very insightful, Brad. Um, you know, whether we take somebody who's newly interested in research or a new resident without that investment at the front end, which is an investment, but you, you reap the awards. So just to kind of recap, it sounds like the bare minimum shadowing would be in the kind of six to eight week range. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think so. Someone with no experience for sure. And I think if you have a new grad, that time may be longer, you know, because you have to teach them how to take care of patients as well, you know. Um, And then I think as they grow, then you can give them more opportunities to see patients independently, you know, but it's a gradual process. I mean, I think it's going to be at least six or 12 months of OJT, you know. Uh, I think that has to be the expectation going into it. So tell us a little bit about that
2: supervision process early on. Say you've got, you know, eight, 12 weeks under your belt. The newly hired PA is starting to kind of demonstrate a reasonable understanding of some of the fundamentals of urology. So would you, or just give us your experience on, are you recommending that the PAs see a patient, do a lot of the documentation in conjunction with a physician, or would it be you're seeing them independently under the supervision of a physician? Could you speak a little bit about to that process?
1: Yeah, I think early on, the shared visit model makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, that would allow you as a physician maybe to add an extra you know five or seven patients onto your clinic with the expectation that that p a is going to be seeing the patient doing most of the work up, getting the history and physical, and then essentially presenting the patient to you, you know, and then you guys spend a couple minutes talking about it. You go into the clinic or go into the room with the patient and kind of, you know, wrap things up and make sure everyone's on the same page uh, regarding the, you know, the plan of care, essentially. But, you know, I think that as time goes on, this is a course of months, I would say, you know, you're going to want to give that person more autonomy, you know, after the 10th or 15th microscopic hematuria patient that's been seen, you know, does Dr. Silva really need to go in and see that patient, right? You know, and moving forward, the hope is that that wouldn't necessarily be the case. You know, the hope is that that person will progress to a point at which their skill level, uh, and frankly, your confidence in that person is to a point at which you're like, hey, listen, do I really need to come into the room? And it, That's the goal is this team practice model, I would say, over the long run.
2: Yeah, yeah. So a couple of nitty gritties here. So have you run into situations where you have a patient that was expecting to see an MD or there's a little bit of a a difference in expectation at, at time point zero and any comments on how to handle that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that starts uh, from the time the patient calls the clinic. You know, th- that has to do with the back office personnel making sure there's clear expectations regarding, you know, who the patient's going to be seeing. You know, and, and yet, even with that, sometimes patients say, "Oh, is Doctor, you know, Smith coming in as well?" And you know, it depends on the patient. You know, I, I'll, I'll always offer it. Yeah, sure, Doctor Smith's right down the hall. You know, is there you want me to grab him or not? And a lot of times, the patients, frankly, once you Present it that way, they'll say, No, I think we're good by now. But I think oftentimes it depends on the confidence level the patient has in you as a provider, right? Mm -hmm. If you have confidence and you know what you're doing, I think that will emanate and the patient will be comfortable with the situation. But I think the reality of it starts with the back office in terms of setting the expectations. And then a couple of follow up
2: questions, some practical kind of building related questions in the shared visit type of model. As you mentioned, the PA is able to do much of the work, the documenting, the ordering, et cetera. The physician will be able to see the patient as well. And are they, do,
1: do the physicians typically bill as the provider for that visit? Yeah, I would say, you know, the way shared visits work, they can be done both at the inpatient and outpatient setting. And you combine the, the note, right, in terms of the amount of information that's in there. And then you bill at a level based upon the com- combined note, the physician has to document what they did and they, they have to see the patient as well uh, mm-hmm. for the shared visit. And then you can bill hundred percent of the physician fee uh, at that time, assuming the physician bills, I would say definitely in a private practice model, if you're doing shared visits, that makes the most sense. It's harder uh, to do that for follow-up patients. You know, unless you're seeing every single follow-up patient with the, with the PA, which ultimately I don't think should be your goal over the long run. There's different requirements that CMS has. Some hoops you have to jump through essentially to do that. So let's say that we're evolving and we've gone from
2: kind of the shared visit model to the independent provider model. Is it as you get your license that you say that physicians X, Y, and Z are my supervising physicians? Or do a certain percentage of charts actually have to be reviewed? Is it more theoretical? Um, Could you tell us a little bit
1: about that? Sure. I I think the most important thing starting off is understanding what your state laws are. You know, each state uh, in terms of supervision requirements are different. And so you have to look at your individual state law regarding what requirements there are. Um, in Texas, it's there's no specific requirements re- regarding the number of charts you need to review, etc. It's a very broad-based supervision. You know the, the the laws are written broad to allow for application to different practice patterns. Right? You know the practice uh, an academic medical center may be different than a private practice in West Texas, for example. Um, so they're broad-based, and the application is such that. It allows the physician to determine um, what works best for the practice, essentially. Oftentimes, okay. some states are different, but oftentimes that's the case.
2: Now, let's say you're a year out, the PAs has several diagnoses that they're very comfortable with. And when they're billing,
1: is there a percentage that that's typically billable at? Or So Medicare CMS will reimburse at 85% of the physician fee rate. Um, most private payers nowadays are comparable. I would say most of them are at about 85%, but they, it, the provider has to be, uh, registered within that Blue Cross Blue Shield plan or that, you know, that health plan to bill under their like NPI number. Uh, sometimes you'll find a private practice plan that reimburses at a hundred percent, but I would say in terms of planning, uh, and in terms of revenue, it should be, I think as a practice, you'd think about 85% of the physician fee rate.
0: I was going to ask in terms of the department uh, when they your a, a new PA, are they looking towards the chair model or just the the, the PA being a, a provider in that sense, having their own clinic and ju- then just feed the the, the specialist
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on uh, the the practice. I mean, if you're speaking directly to UT Southwestern, I, I would say our model is um, you know maybe a, a little bit unique and that's evolved over time. I mean. I'll, a lot of the PAs in our practice, they, they break their practice up. We do a lot of general urology, but I also include, I encourage the PAs in our department to subspecialize in some area. You know, for me, I do a lot of male sexual dysfunction. I do uh, the majority of the MRI, trust fusion biopsies in our practice, and there are other PAs that do female urology, kidney stones, et cetera. So I want them to be an expert in something but they also first assist in the operating room on robotic cases as well. And so it's a big part of our practice. And so their experiences are varied, Um, but I would say for the most part, probably about 80% of their practice is independent. I would say maybe 20% of the PAs do work with uh, some physicians in a shared visit model. And that's kind of newer, frankly, that's kind of been an evolution. Uh, We've had some needs specifically in our urologic oncology division, in terms of helping facilitate new patient appointments and managing follow-up care, et cetera. But that's just been a, something that's been in the last two years.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's really insightful, Brad. And you know, we, we talked quite a bit about clinic visits. I think it, when I think about our, our main aspects of practice, it's clinic visits, it's clinic procedures, it's operating, and then inpatient. So maybe we touch base a little bit on clinic procedures, cystos, MRI fusion biopsies, which you mentioned, is this general process going to be similar where it's going to be shadowing, hands-on, moving towards autonomy? Can you tell us a little bit about that? And is there any particular credentialing that's required to participate in office procedures?
1: yeah so just to speak to myself, you know, yeah, that's how the evolution essentially worked for me. It was shadowing uh and almost like an apprenticeship. And I would say I learned in the majority of the procedures I did with Roarborn at the time and and that was mainly cystos and uh ultrasound and and biopsies. And, you know, over a period of time, you know, he finally said to me, Brad, you've had more supervised systos than any urology resident ever. I I think you're good. And and to me, that was a blessing that I finally got from him saying, you know, you know what you're doing, you know. And, And at that point, it went, you know, there's different levels of supervision that. I transitioned at that point from a, you know, personal kind of direct supervision to more of an indirect supervision, right? You know, most of the time he was in the clinic when I was doing procedures. Uh, but now, frankly, you know, I'm at a satellite clinic and there may not be a, a urologist, you know, within 15 miles of when I'm doing a cysto or a truss biopsy. So, yeah, I mean, but that has just been in the last five years. That wasn't my first year or two of practice. You know, I I wouldn't put a new grad in that situation, frankly.
2: Yeah, I can just maybe comment too from the MD side. You know, we've got tremendously experienced um PAs, you know, Brad right at twenty years and and a really tremendous group, numbering close to eight now. And just like any one of us, I think if there's anything that's a little bit outside of our comfort zone, a little bit outside of our wheelhouse, it's nothing more than stepping out and saying, Hey, do you mind taking a look at this CISTO or do you mind taking a look at this CT? Just like we do with our partners, it's it's very similar. But um, I, what I'm hearing is once the practice determines that you have the skill set to do procedures, whether that's cystos, blue light cystos, random 12 core biopsies, or, or even MRI biopsies, I can tell you at UT Southwestern, Brad does the lion's share of the biopsies and has some of the best outcomes in terms of accuracy. So, is that, is that a fair summary of, of kind of clinic procedures?
1: yeah from from a clinic standpoint, um it's really practice based uh, in terms of what you can and cannot do. Now, if you're a hospital based clinic, oftentimes credentialing privileging goes through the hospital from that standpoint. So you may have to quote unquote jump through a few more hoops uh, in terms of credentialing uh, and privileging if it's a hospital based clinic. but if it's not a hospital based clinic, then that's determined at the practice site
0: you you mentioned the satellite clinic. so uh, we when you started there, was it also five years ago, or you started before and then it evolved to start doing procedures based on need, or or how how was the process that you started doing procedure? Was it procedures? Um, yeah, the procedures itself, I started
1: doing uh, on the main campus. Um, okay. So frankly, it was you know, within the first year of my practice, but that was with, you know, personal supervision initially. Right. I mean, it was with a one-on-one with a urologist doing cystos and truss biopsies. So
0: Uh, rooming for eventually being on your own.
1: Yeah. I mean, at that time, you know, there were no satellite clinics. Right. And, you know, we're all in the same clinic space. And so there was always a urologist available, you know, but it wasn't the personal supervision. They weren't in the same room. They're in the same sw- office suite, but not in the same room, you know, when I was doing the procedures.
2: Okay. So maybe this is a kind of a natural transition moving into the hospital and inpatient setting, and perhaps we can talk about operating. So at UT Southwestern, the, the PAs are fairly extensively involved with the robotics program. Uh, and I would say they do about 95% of the bedside assisting. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the logistics in terms of credentialing, bringing somebody on board who may not have extensive experience, and then um, even some of the billing aspects of it, which I think can, can be a little bit nuanced. I know it's a lot, but we'll just have you kind of go at it,
1: Brad. Sure. From an onboarding standpoint, I think, you know, it goes back to the experience of the person that you're bringing on board. You know, do they have operating room experience or not? How long has it been since they've been in the operating room? Do they have laparoscopic experience? Do they have robotic experience? You know, and based upon that, you determine the trajectory of uh, autonomy. Um, You know, it's been a long time since I've taken a quote unquote green PA Um, outside of our fellowship program and integrated them into our robotics program. Uh, We've had a a PA urology fellowship program for about 10 years now. And part of that, the first six months, they're essentially learning all the different aspects of urology, including first assisting the operating room. Um, The second six months, they function kind of independently, quote unquote, in our practice, like any other PA would. But I would say it's probably just like you know, surgical residents. you know, the vast majority of them can uh, build up a skill set, you know that's uh, what you would expect. And there have been a couple over the years where you know you could tell within the first few weeks or a couple of months that you know this this person's really gonna struggle, you know, and some people just don't have the dexterity uh, to move forward uh, with being able to first assist in the operating room. But frankly, I think those people kind of self-select, you know, they they don't look for positions in the operating room uh, if they're not comfortable in in that scenario. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of one-on-one hands-on training and then it's it, like anything else, it's kind of a gradual apprenticeship. Um, my goal is, you know, if I'm training someone how to first assist on a robotic case, I'm going to be scrubbed in, you know, one-on-one with them. They're going to shadow me they're going to observe me do cases I'm going to articulate and tell them why I'm doing things and eventually I'll allow them to do part of the case and hopefully over a period of time I'm not even scrubbing in I'm just standing by
0: you know giving them pointers along the way and that's where someone while they're doing the the fellowship with you right
1: yeah, but I think it's applicable um, to other people uh, as well. Um, but I, I think the hard thing in your practice may be if, if this is the first PA you've hired, you know, yeah. because that's going to also involve a, a physician being in the operating room, frankly, you know, with you if you're yeah teaching, um, where for us, most of the teaching and onboarding that happens uh, is internal within the PA group, you know, because we have eight PAs with a lot of experience, and you know, it's it's very rare that you know a physician is going to do kind of
0: one-on-one training in the operating room
1: uh, on the first assist side of things.
0: Definitely, and it's something that that worries me that, in, in some sense, uh, because I don't want her to get uh, I mean overwhelmed right. or, or frustrated with, uh, from the situation. Maybe I'm not going to be there all the time to teach her. So so a lot of things she's gonna be to, to have to, to learn on her own, or I mean, or at least not at the moment, but it's gonna be interesting. And Brad, is there any is it standard
2: credentialing in terms of ultimately having the ability to do procedures, whether that's robotic prostatectomy, partial nephrectomy,
1: et cetera, or you know yeah. tell us a little bit about that, yeah, from from a credentialing standpoint, I was part of the credentialing committee at U t Southwestern for a while. and essentially, the credentialings once again, the language is pretty broad. Uh, they allow us to first assist uh, on cases within the specialty of the supervising physician, and it's up to the physician oftentimes to dictate what's appropriate uh, or not, and it's fairly broad based and then maybe you could
2: speak a little bit about billing for cases, any kind of tips and tricks to make it uh, yeah, as advantageous within and then obviously staying within the legal system? Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, from a, a billing standpoint, it's quite challenging, I would say, uh, from a financial standpoint to have a physician first assist nowadays on, frankly, any case, you know, I mean, the physicians only get reimbursed I believe it's 16% of the of the surgical fee to be a first assistant. Uh, an APP uh, would get reimbursed at at least Medicare wise 85% of that 16%. And so when you look at it from a dollars and cents standpoint you'd much rather your partner be in the clinic uh, generating revenue you know during those hours than you know being v- reimbursed at a very low rate. And so for example if a, a surgeon gets $1000 for a procedure being the primary surgeon, that surgeon being the first assistant would only get, let's say, $160.
2: Okay. Yeah. And this is something that I'll ask you to speak to this about the variation in practice settings, in practice, OR, clinic, inpatient, and, and impact on quality of life, because my understanding is dollars and cents wise, it makes the most sense for a PA to be in the clinic.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think that's, that's fairly, that's without a doubt, you know, assuming that person is productive in clinic, assuming that person is able to do procedures in clinic and you're not kind of quote unquote restricting their practice to just post op patients, uh, et cetera, then yeah. I mean, I I think what you'll find is that's probably the case for most private practice urologists as well. And
2: in your own job and in the way that you have impacted the fellowship, which is generally a mix of operative and clinic urology. Do you find it gives some satisfaction, some some diversity in being in that uh, operative and, and clinic experience that goes beyond
1: dollars and cents? A hundred percent. You know, I, I like the variety of And my work schedule, frankly, you know, I I think, you know, at least the people we recruit uh, and that we've hired over the last 10 to 12 years, they feel the same way. You know, they want the mix. They want both clinic uh, and they want some time in the operating room as well. And so that's kind of in the DNA of our group. However, you know, there are some private practices out there that they don't have a need for someone in the operating room and they just want someone in the clinic. And if that's what someone wants, then, you know, that's fine. You just have to make sure you articulate that to the person you're, you're recruiting and hiring. Um, but, you know, I, I think it depends on the needs of the practice. And it's in our DNA at UT Southwestern that that
0: combination is there. Uh, I got a question, Brad. Uh, do you think you already reach your, your, your max uh, scope of practice uh, at UT Southwestern in that sense? I mean, or, or do you think that you're able to do more more uh take more responsibilities as a PA? I mean I think you know from
1: my standpoint you know I'm happy with where I am. Uh, I think that any professional in practice I think my experience is, at least has been every three or five years you try and reinvent yourself in some way you find some new challenge and uh, I think I've done that through the majority of my career whether it would be in clinic or developing the uh, fellowship program, et cetera. And so I think as long as you're able to kind of find something new every three to five years, it keeps you interested and engaged. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be something else in the future that I latch on to. I would say the most recent thing I've done is, is the MRI fusion biopsies. And yeah, I've kind of been there, done that, and I'm looking for the next evolution and, you know, in urology that there, there'll be always something new. So I'm looking forward to
0: that. And you, you're doing them in the clinic? Yes. Okay.
2: That's the understatement of the century. Brad does like a hundred a week. It's unreal. Wow. Um, so maybe the fourth, just part of <laughs> the patient, patient management, management. Yeah. <laughs> the fourth major part of patient management is inpatient. And if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, that process, I think, you know, of course there's going to be rounding with the tendings, having a familiar face, kind of, you know, getting clinical chops. But uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on having PAs function in, on the inpatient side as well?
1: Yeah, I think that the, there's definitely a role. Once again, I hate to be a broken record, but it depends on the needs of the, pr- needs of the practice. Uh, at UT Southwestern, uh, we purchased a uh, hospital near our campus. Um, I don't know, maybe it was 12 15 years ago, something like that. And that was the first time we had a PA do inpatient medicine because we had two hospitals and we had a limited urologic presence at that other hospital, but they wanted someone there to be able to do inpatient consults, ER consults, etc. And so we hired someone to take on that role. Now, as our hospital system consolidated, That role got pulled back uh, and we didn't do as much inpatient, but now currently we have a nurse practitioner that is essentially 100% doing inpatient care, doing uh, rounds with the residents and the attendings, doing ER consults uh and it's it's great he loves it uh, and it's a great position for him i think he enjoys the education aspect of it as well especially with the interns and the first year urology residents he has a lot of experience and helps grease the wheels in some way and keep the machine running uh that is inpatient urology at ut southwestern frankly
2: that's great brad and i know we've we're coming up on a on an hour here but if you had advice for a practice of physicians hiring a PA, and vice versa, for PAs considering joining a practice, what would that advice look like?
1: I think there has to be clear expectations regarding what the goals are. I think for a practice, you need to have an understanding of really what your true needs are and make sure that a PA or a nurse practitioner fits whatever those needs are. And I think you need to identify a champion, like I mentioned earlier, someone who will be that go-to person. But I think you really need buy-in from the whole group, you know, that being from the office staff to the nurses to the most senior physician in your practice. Because if you don't have that, uh, then, you know, there'll be unnecessary barriers that will make it challenging for that person to be successful i think the the onboarding the first six to twelve months are are key you know you don't want to lose that person you know frankly you don't want to lose that person uh after three years i mean think of all the education and training you you've given that person you want to make sure that as they grow in their practice that their professional development their autonomy grows uh, and that their level of interest grows. I've, the most frustrated people I've seen PA and NP-wise over the years are those in which they're not allowed to grow their clinical practice. They get bored, you know, after a year or two, and, and then they start looking for another position. And that's not what you want as a, you know, a part of a group practice. You want someone who is engaged. You want someone who likes their job uh, and who does, a, frankly, does a good job and wants to continue to grow um, professionally and educationally. Yeah, I think that's incredibly insightful. You
2: know, certainly that it's it's a member of the team. It's somebody just like anybody else wants to keep it fresh, keep it evolving, take on new different responsibilities. And um maybe I'll I'll pass it back to you, OJ, and uh we can
0: we can take it from there. I think I'm good for now. Uh definitely Along the way, I'm going to have questions. I'm going to email Brad for sure. Sure. Happy to <laughs> help you. Yeah. It wouldn't be the first time. No. <laughs> so, um, you used it, But yeah, I, I guess my, my concern, I mean, from my part is just how, how to keep her engaged, uh, make sure that she doesn't get frustrated, overwhelmed, and that she she feels comfortable. Just like you mentioned, uh, I, I want her uh, to be in the practice for the long run. I don't want him to train her for, for one or two years and then leave. So, so that will be the challenge to, to keep, keep caring, uh, keep her engaged.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, like many things, the first time's the hardest, you know, and there'll be some lessons learned. Right. And, um, you know, I think ultimately the goal would be, if this is successful, then you make that person kind of a quote unquote lead APP in your group, you know, and then it gets easier, right. After you get some critical mass, you get a couple people there, then your responsibility is. A little bit easier. I, I think then the responsibility gets disseminated across the other APPs who are there in your practice to onboard education and, and, and set the expectations for anyone else that joins.
2: Well, that's great, Brad. You know, really appreciate your insight, your experience. Um, you know, I, I personally can say that, you know, what Brad's been able to do here for patient care, for growing a department, for starting a tremendous urology fellowship, I'll throw a plug out there for anybody that's interested in urology. It's really um, admirable. So, you know, again, thank you for spending some time with us on on this Sunday afternoon. And um, personally, again, it's always a pleasure working with you. Thanks, Brad.